St. Mark's was founded in 1835 by Frederick Salmon and was originally named the Benevolent Dispensary for the Relief of the Poor Afflicted with Fistula and Other Diseases of the Rectum. Well, one of those other diseases was, of course, cancer of the rectum and cancer of the colon. And St. Mark's became very well known for this. Indeed, we gave the world the first and perhaps even still one of the most important classifications, the Duke's classification, named after Dukes who, Cuthbert Dukes, who was our first uh, St. Mark's pathologist. My name is Peter MacDonald and I'm an old surgeon at St. Mark's and I'm going to be interviewing Danilo Miskovic on a topic very similar, an extension perhaps of those first ideas developed at St. Mark's, the complete mesocolic excision of the colon um, and, and the new movement that seems to be growing fast in this regard. Well, welcome, Danilo. And, um, you know, you, you've been here quite a while now in, in the hospital and teaching us and others uh, something about complete mesocolic excision, which is a relatively new concept. Um, do you want to just tell us what, what you mean by that? Um, hi, Peter. Nice to see you here. Um, I think uh, CME has been abused and misused as a term for uh, many reasons, but I still think the, the best definition that we can get for CME is uh, really following three major principles in colonic cancer surgery. And that's, first of all, um, to stick to the mesocolic plane, this nice embryological plane that we all recognize as an important factor. Um, and then to have adequate longi longitudinal resection, obviously, uh, proximal and distal to the tumor. And then the most controversial one, which is the central vascular ligation and central lymphadenectomy. So these are really the three key principles that we are trying to follow um, for each of these operations. I mean, how does that differ from previous standard bowel or colon resection principles, how would you define the difference between that mm. and what we've done for many years? Um, you know, for some surgeons, there might not be uh, much of a difference, really. Um, uh, for some surgeons, the whole concept uh, might be new, but generally, I think we all recognize for many years now that especially you know, respecting the planes and being in the right plane is, is an important factor. I think what I mentioned earlier, the big, biggest controversy is around the central lymph, lymphadenectomy and, and uh, central vascular ligation. So the Japanese really came up with this kind of um, concept that there are different levels of, of lymph nodes. Uh, they, they named them D1, D2 and D3, with D3 the, the most central ones. And... Um, what we are trying to do diligently is to kind of take that lymph node package out. And I think the biggest controversy and the biggest difference to traditional surgery and especially traditional laparoscopic surgery as well is on the right side because we kind of accept it as a community that it's okay to take the ileocolic vessels somewhere at the level of the duodenum and that, that should be sufficient. But when you look into the details of the anatomy, you will find that there is actually quite a lot of lymph node tissue still proximal to that and we are really trying to operate around the superior mesenteric vessels and to define the anatomy around there uh, in much more detail. So what evidence do we have for this now, this, ch this change to even more meticulous surgery, more complete removal of the lymph, 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 uh, lymph chain, the lymph node chain, uh, and is there any evidence that this is really going to benefit patients over what we did before? Mm. 
I think, you know, as always in surgery, I think it is extremely difficult to prove these things and the direct link between one surgical technique uh, and and patient outcomes. What we can say, I think, overall, or what the evidence is pointing towards, so is if, if you accept the whole package as a as a standard way of doing things, your outcomes are likely to become better. And that, with that, I mean your oncological outcomes in terms of um, five-year survival. So all those units that, that have introduced the standardized way of performing CME have observed that, and especially in stage three cancer, as you would expect. Um, linking individual parts of that to to these outcomes is more difficult. So if you're talking specifically about lymphadenectomy again, um, it becomes quite difficult to prove that. Um, what we know in theory is that there are not that many positive central lymph nodes. So there are some Japanese population studies where they were looking at how many lymph nodes are affected in the central compartment. And it's probably only about 3 to 5%. And of those, or of all the lymph nodes that can be affected, only probably about 1% are skip metastases, so that you only have a positive lymph node centrally, but the rest of the lymph nodes is okay. And in theory, these are the patients that really benefit from that, so that you take that out and then you recognize this is actually a stage 3 disease and not a stage 2, and then they will get chemotherapy. So in theory, you're only helping 1 in 100 patients, really. Uh, but the practice looks different. Um, and I guess so far we still have the best evidence from Japan, from population-based studies where they were looking back at historical um, cohorts of D2 resection, so the more traditional lymphadenectomy versus the D3. And they could actually observe a 5% improvement in survival, which was significant. And they certainly showed that in other cancers, like in the stomach and so on, Absolutely, classic, yeah. classically. Yeah. But where's the classic work come for colon? Is it is it just Japan, Japan or has it come from somewhere else? No, I think the you know the whole concept of CME, um, although it was maybe in a similar way practiced in Japan for a long time or in the Far East, Far East in general, um, uh, was mainly a German movement around Werner Hohenberger in Erlangen, who was kind of promoting that concept for you know decades, really, um, in open surgery. But he was really kind of laying the foundations for the for accepting that concept as a uh, uh, as uh, along these uh, principles that I mentioned before. And did, was he able to show a better survival? In and his he cohort? certainly for his own cohort could could show an improvement. Um, he could he he compared again historical. Um, uh, data from his early experience with later um, cohorts that he could show that things were just getting better and better and overall his you know his his outcomes were uh, fantastic when compared to other more traditional uh, operating surgeons and was his thinking influenced by what had happened in rectal cancer with the um, TME movement and the change that occurred there in the early 80s I don't know. You probably have to ask him. <laughs> right. But uh, but uh, I'm, it, I'm it sure. Sort of I'm sure. Sort I'm sure. Of it has, that, yes, absolutely. It? I mean, there is also Nick West's work, which is important here. Uh, Nick is a pathologist in Leeds, and uh, he works closely with with Phil Quirk, who came up with this yeah. kind of whole TME concept and the quality of the specimen and the mesorectal plane. <clears throat> and he was trying basically to reproduce that for colon cancer and they came up with a very similar categorization of uh, mesocolic plane, intramesocolic plane and then intra or uh, uh, muscularis propria plane uh, exactly the same like it was done for the, for the rectum and they could link survival to these different uh, quality 
uh, of specimens and show that especially the worst specimens had a significantly decreased survival again in the stage 3 disease group particularly um, but I think you know that, that that is only part of the story because that's that's not really looking at the whole thing I mean they were also kind of look, trying to measure the specimens in terms of where the high ties etc but we know that um, individual inter uh, or inter-individual differences in terms of anatomy and length of vessels is so variable that you can't, you know, I can't compare your mesocolon with mine. We don't know whether we have the same level of high tie in terms of length of the vessel. So from a pathological specimen, it's quite difficult to assess whether the mesocolon is completely removed or not. But what they can certainly assess is whether the mesocolic plane, so one of these three principles, and the longitudinal resection, um, so that's the second of the principles, is uh, is completed to a high quality or not. So, and, and with like with the um, rectal cancer, when when TME TME started to be, become used um, from Bill Heald and others, uh, one of the one of the worries was this is a bigger dissection. Um, therefore, we're going to get bigger complications because mm. we're going to devascularize the mm. rectum and so on. And in fact, that that fear was not uh, substantiated. And in fact, there's no. It's quite clear that there is no increased risk mm. of complications. But this, rather like that, sounds more invasive, uh, and therefore you might get more blood loss and therefore more complications when you do this sort of surgery. Where are we with that? That's really interesting because that's the biggest fear, especially on the right side again, because we are taught as colorectal surgeons never go anywhere close to the pancreas and never go anywhere close to the mesenteric vessels because you can cause disaster. Um, what I've learned, I think, is that this, uh, um, it was recently called um, named by someone, you know, this is tiger country where you where you shouldn't go. I think that was Bill Hill who talked about that <laughs> right. in, the, uh, um, in the rectum, certainly. Um, I was working with him. It, he often used to say, "Oh, we're in Tiger Country." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and and uh, my response to that was really, "It's only Tiger Country because we're not able to see it." So I think if you're um, if you understand the anatomy, if you go there, if you look at things, if you dissect them out properly, it is not dangerous because you are actually in control of things. Um, but certainly there is this this fear um, of of causing damage and we do have some uh, or the, the the best evidence we have so far is from a large danish series where the where anders bertelsen in hill road in in uh, copenhagen was looking at um uh, the uh, complication rates of cme surgery compared to more traditional surgery and that was open and laparoscopic and they could show that there is a difference in terms of some of the complications and the ones that are feared included them. So, for example, injury to the SMV, which was about 1.7% and significantly higher than in the other group, which was somewhere below half a percent. Um, still small numbers, but it was significantly more. So those that had CME were getting higher complications in that study. In that study, in this, in this, in this region, all the other uh, or m most of the other complications were were no different. But you know, my point of this is, of course, when you are you know avoiding that area completely, you shouldn't really injure it. Um, that's where the traditional surgery is. Um, and so there is a risk that you can injure things when you go there. But I think a lot of these complications um, published in that study were also related to a learning curve and to this early experience. And I think that's something that we are really working hard on at the moment to try to avoid this because 
what always happens with with new kind of or novel surgical concepts and now we are observing this i think with laparoscopic cme particularly is that people are just jumping on the bandwagon and trying to do something and then things go wrong and then they are disappointed and then they may abandon it again and i think that's what we're trying to avoid by introducing we certainly saw that with the laparoscopic um, surgery initially yeah metastatic complications in port sites and yeah. so on and, and that was all about technique yeah, and control absolutely. and it was overcome quite quickly yeah. once training had yeah. been put in place and talking about training and trainees and some of the people who will be listening to us um where you know at what point do they start doing this and who should do it who should train them what equipment do they, should they be using um tell us a bit bit about that i think it depends what you're what you're deciding to do i think um uh for those units which have an established minimal invasive um, approach and i think that's probably the majority of of, of the units nowadays um, i think you can do these operations with more or less traditional laparoscopic instruments um, it's obviously good to have um, a, a good energy device um, for uh, uh, going through uh, vessels and uh, and stopping bleeding um, there is um, i think in terms of training um, you know, it can be trained um, within the normal kind of surgical training pathway. What you have to recognize is that something like a right hemicolectomy, from traditionally being the workhorse of surgical resectional training, it becomes a much more complex procedure. And it may not be the one that you want to do right at the beginning. It's but, got a reputation for all the anomalous venous an- anatomy, hasn't it? And, you yeah. know, the difference in the yes. way the blood vessels come through and out and i mean should you be do you have to use cadavers or something to learn this did you have to do that or did you just extend what you knew already um i had very little because i kind of started it out of the blue but i think nowadays we have good um um a good structure in place how to learn it um yes cadavers is one way and um uh, be using that in certain workshops um but i think what is almost more important is preparation. Preparation is almost everything about this. And you can prepare by um, analyzing a patient's individual anatomy using their normal st- staging CT scan. And we can actually teach that, how to do that, how to do that yourself. Does that include an angiogram? No, you don't, you don't even that? need an angiogram. Actually, it's, it's some, sometimes even better not to have an angiogram, but to have just a, a portovenous phase where you can see both artery and vein um, to enough detail or to a, an enough detailed level that you can actually figure out the anatomy. We always, um, so I teach all the fellows to kind of draw it on a piece of paper. And you can do that five minutes before the case or the day before. Uh, and you use that piece of paper during the surgery. And it's kind of a map to guide you through the operation. And I think that is the, the key, really, to, to make this successful. So as with so much of surgery, pre-plan it and you'll, Absolutely. Be, you'll be happier and so will the patient. Absolutely. And what about the robot now? I know you're a great proponent of the robot mm. and you're beginning to do quite large numbers here at St. Mark's. Um, where, where is, is it going to be easier with a robot? Is it going to? Does it take longer? Um, I don't think it takes longer. It's basically we do the same operation. Um, I think it does make things easier, because what is really um, uh, important again around the, the kind of the operating around the vessels, there are two things. One is that you have a, need to have a good view, and a very detailed view that you see these, especially the smaller vessels and the smaller structures. 
And the robot certainly does provide that because you have this three-dimensional vision and you can really go really close. And maybe more important, you have a stable camera. So you don't have all these moving parts like in, in laparoscopy and you have to control all, all these moving parts and your assistant. Um, but it's you, you put the camera wherever you want and you can see a stable um, view of the field that you're operating in. And the second important thing is that you have um, uh, you have wristed instruments, so you can actually um, work behind vessels or go, go around vessels uh, much easier than with, with straight laparoscopic instruments. I think these two are, are real advantages and also for teaching, um, especially when you have two consoles, um, teaching works really well for this procedure in the robot. And but are, it's perfectly we, possible as well laparoscopically. And are you skeletonizing the pancreas almost, you know, taking everything off it? I, and I do, yeah. Certainly the unsinate process, that's actually where we start with the procedure. So we lift up the terminal ileum for the right colon uh, and start going onto the duodenum and onto the pancreas. And we, we kind of clear the whole surface, the anterior surface of the pancreas. And that helps to then go onto the vessel and also gives you some level of control if something happens because you have access from both sides. And that, and that's a bloodless field when if it's done well? It is, yeah. Uh, it should be. Um, otherwise, you're wrong if it bleeds. And we're um, not seeing pancreatitis after these operations? No, surprisingly not. That's a, that's a question we often get asked. And, and actually, I've... Uh, I've never seen a pancreatitis, um, even, you know, it can sometimes happen that you nick a bit of pancreas or that you put a patch on or a patch of a, a surgery cell or something. Uh, it's very rare, but even then I've never seen pancreatitis, but I've heard um, that it has been reported before, uh, but it's it's definitely not something that is common. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we're, you know, as we've been going through this in the last thirty years, the rectum's been the, the organ where we should be, you know, exercising our great surgical skills. Mm. It's all been about the rectum, hasn't it? Mm. And now we're seeing the colon, which mm. was always regarded, oh, any old fool can do that, mm. coming into its own mm. and saying, well, no, not any old fool can do it. I mean, we've learned that with things like anastomotic leakage we know it's almost as high on the right side as it is on the left yeah. uh, and this is this is similar in the sense we're now turning our attention to the to the colon surgery where in fact curates have not been as good as they might have been and I think that's is, part of the reason, you know. Yeah, we're um, trying to so, bring it up to the same standard, really. Uh, so a lot of population um, or epidemiological studies show that rectal cancer survival is actually better than, than colon cancer. And there is a reason behind that, I think. And you think it's <laughs> and, probably the technique is may have a I'm lot sure to there's do. like, you know, uh, additive uh, treatments like radio and chemotherapy play a role. But um, I think I think surgical um, quality um, almost certainly uh, plays a role. So how would you advise someone just starting up, you know, le learn the basic skills initially mm. and then slowly but surely move into this field? Yeah, I think, I'm you know, at the moment we are still there is there is uh, we're still at a very early kind of uh, stage of this movement. So, you know, you won't find it um, in, in all the uh, different uh, or, or, or it's not very widespread that you can just go anywhere and learn it. Um, so we are at the moment focusing to teach um, seniors uh, mainly. So um, we have uh, from the European Society of Coloproctology, there is, an, uh, um, uh, there is a, um, a training program um, that is aimed at a kind of consultant level. Um, there are other uh, training programs in Germany actually happening, which are uh, built in a very similar way. And what we're really trying to do is to kind of um, get a good base of experienced surgeons um, around Europe to practice this 
and I think then it will become more commonplace and become something um, for trainees. So we've, uh, you know, we've heard a lot about it recently, but we're going to hear a lot more about it. And I think you think it's going to become the standard method in the end of doing a colon? I think it will depend what, what future evidence will show. There are still a few um, trials out there that we're waiting for results. And um, I think they will probably direct um, the future. You know, when we're talking about a far future, I don't, or I hope that this won't be po won't be necessary anymore. That we will have much more kind of um, subtle methods to treat cancer. Um, you know, eventually, surgery will hopefully become obsolete as well in most cases. But um, it's something you know that I don't think will be here forever. Well, <laughs> uh, but for the next uh, for the next decade or so, I'm sure there's a, a movement towards that. Well, Danilo, thank you very much for bringing us up to date with. One of the new concepts in um, colon erectile surgery. It's been a fascinating few moments, and uh, I hope that our listeners will have found the same. And we look forward to welcoming you to other St. Mark's podcasts in the future. This is Peter McDonald, one of the senior surgeons at St. Mark's, um, still learning at a ripe old age, and we hope we'll be able to do the same for all our listeners in the future. Thank you very much indeed, Danilo. Thank you, Peter. <laughs>